We acknowledge the Wadjuk people and the wider Noongar community on whose country we conduct our ceremonies uh, and do our Zazen tonight. Uh, may the voice of the Boja be present uh, not just in words but in all the manifestations of our humanity uh, here tonight. This is a talk uh, for Buddha's uh, enlightenment night. Um, Shakyamuni sees the morning star. Robert Aiken said, Shakyamuni Buddha looked up and saw the morning star and exclaimed, I and all beings have at this moment attained the way. What did he realize? Please sit comfortably. Welcome, everyone. Uh, if you listen carefully, you can hear the building easing its back. Uh, when it is hot, uh, let there just be heat. Stop bothering the heat. Uh, just heat uh, all through. So the morning star. Uh, when we are in, in <laughs> I was going to say when we are intimate, uh, when we are infinite with the fullness, when we are intimate with the fullness of the moment, uh, we have our life uh, in its fullness, or rather, we just don't have it; we are it. I remember Joko Beck saying rather cynically late in life, look all this car work, she said, you are your life, so just get on with it. <sighs> we don't just have it, we are it. No arduous pilgrimage is necessary for us to experience this. Nor do we have to enter a monastery. We practice in the monastery with no walls, full of traffic, ocean, stars, people, people we like, people we don't like. What better than that? <laughs> when we look into the face of another, we behold our own true face. No need to get carried away. This is oh, no need to get carried away. This is also true for cats and earthworms. Uh, no problemo. Uh, enlightenment uh, is a human problem, rather. When we listen, we listen ourselves away, uh, even when the going is difficult. Sometimes listening to the complaints of our partners or our friends uh, can feel at least as difficult as saving the planet. The world is not some painted backdrop to our ambitions and our need to be in control. Each being we encounter is radiant uh, with its own true and unique nature. Uh, 
And you yourself are not bounded by your skin, your skull or your ideas. So who are you this moment? What are you this moment? Aiken Roshi, when he was very young, actually asked a priest, what would, how would it be for you if it could be proved that Jesus never existed? The priest replied, my faith would be destroyed. Uh, Aiken Roshi sort of raised the question then, uh, what if it could be proved that Shakyamuni never existed? Shakyamuni Buddha. Um, Sure, it would would matter. We would lose some very helpful teachings, um, but his core experience or core awakening um, uh, is a universal one that's not confined by culture uh, and is not subject to the time barrier. Noongar people, more than... 50,000 years ago surely had this experience and so on back for time immemorial. Fire, the cave, the snoring, night. Okay. Um, what is this about? Um, you know, I just imagine, you know, being in a cave with other... I was going to say cave dwellers, but the term has become kind of a bit politically charged these days in Australia. But uh, being unable to sleep and uh, coming out and uh, sitting in front of the fire in the darkness and just, just, just sitting. And that matter gradually becoming, or suddenly becoming clear. So what is it to live the experience of the Buddha in our everyday life? Reaching behind your head in the middle of the night to adjust the pillow? Putting your feet on the cold floor? What a nice thought. <laughs> Putting your feet on the cold floor when you get out of bed in the morning. Um, sitting zazen. Making your first cup of coffee for the day. Getting dressed for work driving to work, waiting for your computer to boot up. Now there's an opportunity to come back to that matter. What matter is that? Listen. We've stumbled on an amazing path. One that liberates us from our mean-spirited delusions uh, maybe helps us to abandon harmful attachments. Uh, yeah, to take a risk and to encounter our own depths. Well, how did it all begin? story goes, Shakyamuni Buddha looked up and saw the morning star and exclaimed, now, that, now I see that all beings are the Tathagata, 
Tathagata here is loaded with history. Um, but one account of Tathagata. Now I see that all beings are the Tathagata. Now I see that all beings are the one that doesn't come and go, for instance. It is just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from bearing witness to this. It is like clouds uh, cover the moon. When the clouds clear, the, the moon uh, the moon is there in its shining. So it's just not kind of vamped up or something that comes out of nothing in any real sense. Um, it is always there. It is um, illimitably, Im illimitably available. Listen. Listen. Yeah, all beings are the Tathagata. All beings are this. Are this one. You know, it, it, it's also in a way true, uh, this one is all beings, but much more potently, um, all beings are this. And each of you are doing, I'm doing it on behalf of everybody here, it's not just personal. All beings are this one. This removes it out of grasping and agency, which is so much the human condition. Uh, it's utterly yours tonight, and in some sense it's also not personal. It's not your agency. That's really neat that it's not our agency. The only job is to be here for it, you know. <laughs> Do Zazen. Open. So before we uh, focus on the life of Shakyamuni Buddha, let's consider for a moment that intrepid star. Venus is the brightest object in our sky outside of the sun and the moon. And she is still visible in the dawn sky as the sun rises. At the breaking of dawn, she is the last star to disappear into its glory. And recently, um, I, I'm totally indebted to Antoinette for any astronomical things that have happened in my life. She's unbelievably um, attuned and keeps up to date with all of this. So all I want to do is watch the 7.30 report, you know, and I think I've driven across in the late sunset, quite blind to its beauty. But Antoinette will lead me out onto the veranda and say, look, look, there, there's the moon. Uh, next to it is Venus. Next to Venus is Jupiter. And then that one is Saturn. And they're all in a line. And this is the first time it's happened for 475 years, you know. Now you can go back to the 7.30 report. Um, so I'm very grateful to her uh, for alerting me to, these, to, to all of this. And, um, yeah, I've kind of promised myself I would learn the names of all the stars and flowers before I die, but it's going to be a long and uphill battle, I can tell you. <laughs>
So, Venus is both the morning star and the evening star, the light and the dark, male and female, differentiation and emptiness and their intimate interpenetration. We don't see, in terms of the story of the Buddha, we don't so much seek literal historical truth, but rather the great archetypal themes that guide and inspire our practice and our lives. Finally, the way is experiential and it's not about clinging to the literal. The way is not other than the depths of who we truly are, which are in the same breath, depth, uh, same breath the depths of the universe. Once upon a time, or some two and a half thousand years ago, Prince Siddhartha was born into the noble family of the Shakya clan at Kapilivastu, located in the ancient Shakya kingdom, which is today part of Nepal. It was foretold that Prince Siddhartha would be a great ruler or a great spiritual teacher. His father, understandably, decided that he should be a great ruler, and in this, undoubtedly, his successor. As a royal youth, Prince Siddhartha was raised in luxury. His father had built him three palaces, one for each season of what must have been a three-season year. And there he enjoyed himself in the company of his friends. At the age of 16, he married his cousin, a beautiful princess named Yasodhara, and lived a contented life in the Shakyan capital, Kapilivastu. During this time, he was also probably trained in the martial arts and the skills of statecraft. It seemed that the genie that could grant an infinity of wishes was at his command. However, hedonism, like asceticism, can be a tough path. The boredom of excess, the distractions of power and its onerous responsibilities was such that when he reached his late 20s, the prince became increasingly introspective. What troubled him were questions concerning purpose and meaning of life, his life. Uh, the question for him is the purpose of our existence, the enjoyment of sensual pleasures, the achievement and wealth and status, the exercise of power. Or is there something beyond these that is inherently more real and fulfilling? Such questions obsessed him. He escaped from the palace where he had been walled up by his father to protect him from the raw realities of the world and our life in it. You know, in some ways too, we do a good job of protecting ourselves from a lot of reality as well. Um, good for us to climb the wall and see how the world really is. Uh, on his surreptitious visits to the world outside, um, he and the, um, the charioteer, um, who probably knew the keys to how to get in and out of the place, and all of that uh, would take off at night uh, and explore Kapilivastu. Can you imagine Kapilivastu at night, uh, 2,500 years ago? So, with these uh, 
escapes, he encounters an old person, a sick person, and a corpse, and ultimately a monk. And he glimpses his destiny in that meeting. From these signs he intuits and knows in his deepest being what he must do. At such moments we know in our heart, we know overwhelmingly what we must do. And each of us has had such moments in our lives, surely. It's been said that the koan that Shakyamuni carried was, Why do we suffer? Is there liberation from suffering? What is that liberation? In terms of the Mahayana, we suffer because we are ignorant of the nature of reality and our relation to it. In particular, we suffer because we're caught up in dualistic conceptions of self and other. This can be briefly framed as <coughs> what Haku and Yasutani are called the fundamental delusion of humanity, that I am in here and you are out there. We each and all of us share the Buddha's enlightenment, which at the deepest level is also our own. But the tangled forest of our delusions and attachments regarding who we are and our relation to the world shuts out the vastness of our true nature. So our suffering arises from our ignorance regarding the nature of reality uh, and our relation to it. And, if this is different from the delusions and attachments that spring from our ignorance. In Theravadan tradition, it is craving that kicks uh, off the wheel of birth and death, cause and effect. Uh, in the Mahayana, it's ignorance or delusion that kicks it off. So, why do we suffer? Is there liberation from suffering? What is that liberation? Investigating these profound questions, Shakyamuni embarked on his heroic quest. He began with a study of the philosophies and meditation systems of his day. Abandoning his home and his wife, Yasodhara, and his son, Rahula, he headed south for Magadha in present-day Bihar, in whose, in whose environs small groups of seekers were quietly pursuing their quest for spiritual illumination, usually under the guidance of a guru. At the time, northern India could boast of a number of accomplished masters famous for their philosophical systems and achievements in meditation. He sought out two of the most eminent, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta. From them he learned systems of meditation which from the descriptions in the text seem to have been forerunners of Raja Yoga. The Buddha mastered their teachings and systems of meditation but though he reached exalted levels of concentration what we call samadhi um, he was the prince of philosophers and the prince of meditators he found these teachings insufficient for they did not lead to the goal he was seeking. Perfect enlightenment and the realisation of nirvana 
released from the sufferings of sentient existence. And this is stage one in our archetypal account um, of his life. So it's mastering the techniques, studying the philosophy of the way. And, you know, in our small way, it's also how we often, most often come uh, to practice. Uh, reading, meditating, curiosity. And I think, you know, often bearing suffering, which is sometimes deeply conscious, sometimes not so conscious. I think our purposes are are often obscure to us when we come into a spiritual path. Don't worry, later on it gets more evident. (laughs) So stage two. It's a bit like the, uh, what is it, um, Hegel's uh, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So this is the antithesis. Austerities, sacrifices, accepting challenges. Shakyamuni then stayed for six years with a group of ascetics practicing austerities. A grain of rice a day. He became prince of the ascetics and it almost killed him. Out of this near catastrophe came the middle way which avoids the extremes of sensual indulgence on one hand and self-mortification on the other. Shakyamuni had experienced both extremes, the former as a prince and the latter as an ascetic. And in terms of his quest, he knew they were ultimately both dead ends. To continue his quest, however, he realised that he would first have to regain his strength. Thus he gave up fasting and resumed taking nutritious food. The story goes that a girl called uh, Sujata, Sujata from the village, uh, discovered him at the point of death. She gave him milk and rice to revive him and she continued doing this until his strength returned. At that time, the other five ascetics who had been attending on him, hoping that when he attained enlightenment, he would serve as their guide, became disgusted with him and left him, thinking that the princely ascetic had given up his exertion and reverted to a life of luxury. Uh, Where are your friends when you need them? So, actually, I think, <laughs> I think um, thus restored and solitary, I think probably with immense relief um, to be solitary here by the, at this point, Shakyamuni undertook to awaken to find liberation. And, this, and in this he got support from the village kids. Sujata continued to feed him and Svasti, the buffalo boy, brought him fresh kusa grass to sit on um, which is kind of an early form of Zafu. Shakyamuni vowed not to rise until he had awakened. 49 days and nights of hard sitting. Um, our sashins, our seven day sashins, in a way represent those 49 days and nights of sitting of the Buddha. And uh, in Rahatsu's session on the last night, which is from the 1st to the 8th, um, 
on the last night it's customary to um, sit all night. Uh-huh. Shakyamuni would have sat in the deep cold um, because uh, it was uh, living close to the Himalayas. It was winter, December. So it would have been hard going, for sure. There are 49 days and nights of hard sitting, during which time he experienced the temptations of Mara, sexual enticements, the enticements of great power. This was surely old stuff to him, but we're all vulnerable in our way, especially if we think we are not. In response to Mara's challenge as to his right to a place beneath the Bodhi tree, Shakyamuni just touched the earth. On the final night, as dusk became darkness, he entered into deeper and deeper stages of meditation until his mind was perfectly calm and composed. Then the records tell us, in the first watch of the night, he directed his concentrated mind to the recollection of his previous lives. Gradually there unfolded before his inner vision his experiences in many past births, even during many cosmic eons. In the middle watch of the night he developed the divine eye by which he could see beings passing away and taking rebirth in accordance with their karma their deeds. You know, it's a question which bears on me. In Shakyamuni Buddha's time and right through the Zen tradition, through the Tang and Sung dynasties and its Japanese things, it was taken for granted that, you know, that there were past lives. Um, and that... Um, you know, this life uh, and future lives automatically. Um, and it always, you know, in the West, I think largely speaking, um, teachers and students uh, don't hold such uh, a view. In general, I feel, probably in Zen circles. And I do wonder what difference it makes um, to how we live our lives, for instance, um, and to how we practice the way. So if you have any thoughts on that, um, I'd be interested to hear, but it, it's something which I find interesting and, and preoccupying. You know, there is evidence of past lives, um, you know, a lot of it well documented, but whether it builds up to the large tapestry of what we regard of ser- as serious lives is, a, is a, maybe another matter. Um, so you know, we never touch on this in Zen and it's often very backgrounded uh, in Zen. Uh, but it, it's certainly powerfully there in, in the tradition, in the traditions. In the last watch of the night, Shakyamuni penetrated the deepest truths of existence and thereby removed from his mind the subtlest veils of ignorance. And then at dawn, he looked up and saw the morning star and exclaimed, Now I see that all beings are the Tathagata. It is just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from realising it. 
And so what did he realize? For several weeks, the newly awakened Buddha remained in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, contemplating from different angles the Dharma, the truth he had discovered. Then he came to a new crossroad in his spiritual career. Um, Should he pass this on? Uh, Or or should he remain quietly in the forest, enjoying the bliss, bliss of liberation alone? A voice nagged him encouragingly. There are surely people with only a little dust in their eyes, surely capable of being awakened. Come on now. So he spent 48 years walking the back roads of India. Um, To put it for the sake of those with just a little dust in their eyes. What do we learn from his example, stickability, determination, devotion. It's an exemplary story. It's an exemplary story and one that has been immensely powerful in the shaping of the Zen way. The Zen way has also shaped the story. Um, the earliest accounts of this are Shakyamuni Buddha sat through the night and, in the, uh, and in the, at dawn the morning star appeared. That's the earliest record. And then slowly the story, uh, the central Khan, I guess, of tonight, uh, grows over centuries. I, I'm aware it's hot. and I want to, just before we leave from here, I wanted to just touch on what flows from the Buddhist experience is a long line of uh, teachers, 28 generations in India um, and then into China for a thousand years or more and then into Japan and that. But what also flows um, from the experience are, are poems and images which are, are really beautiful. And I want to just very briefly, to finish, refer to the story of um, the Buddha is on Mount Gurdrakuta and um, it's afternoon and he's tired and uh, he doesn't want to give his standard talk or whatever he is giving, so he picks up a flower and twirls the flower. Um, that's the presentation, just the twirling of the flower. His senior disciple, uh, Mahakashapa, um, smiled in the tradition, cracked his face. Um, he was a very crusty old ascetic. Uh, and then Shakyamuni said, I transmit the way uh, to you. Uh, what? Um, and this, go, uh, this goes on. And there, I'm trying to find the... The poetry inspired by this um, comes from Kezan Jokin's um, beautiful reflection on the, smile, the flower and the smile. Um, 
in this reflection, the exquisiteness of the imagery is created by two Zen teachers, Fayan Wenyi, who lived from 885 to 958, and Suedo Qijian, who lived from 1105 to 1192, in response to the twirling of the flower uh, and the smile. Now, the twirling of the flower is characterised here as um, the world-honoured one had a secret saying. Okay? That's the twirling of the flowers, characterised as a secret saying. And Kashapa did, um, Kashapa's smile is characterised as Kashapa did not keep it hidden. So, World Honoured one had a secret saying, Kashapa did not keep it hidden. Um, so, Fayan responded to the first, the world honoured one had a secret saying, Spring lingers on the ancient ford. Kashapa did not keep it hidden, falling flowers float on the stream. It's beautiful. I also love the ancient ford, which inevitably produces the effect of an old car as well. It's, it's both a crossing and a. And uh, it's just beautiful. Um, so it's not just the business of you know, the creation of teachers and all of this sort of thing, but there is a literature which also flows. And on a hot night, having the streams is kind of beautiful. I feel cooler already for it. And Suedo, who's the second of these teachers, who's not the Suedo of the Blue Cliff Record, but a later Sardong master. Suedo said, the world-honoured one had a secret saying, a night of flowers falling in the rain. But Kashapa did not keep it hidden. Water is fragrant throughout the city. Uh, may these streams continue. This is also an invitation to write your own responses to the way. Um, I think often, you know, we are receptive and that, but it is also an invitation to continue it in your own uh, terms and find your language and find your expression. We talk about the Buddha's enlightenment night, but actually it's yours. Who or exactly what are you right now? Thank you for your attention.